If you have your Bible, would you open with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. Well, we will be in Daniel 6 this morning. But before we get there, I think it's so important that we just pray for a moment. God, I rejoice this morning that it is indeed your word and your spirit that does the work and not my ability. Lord, that is, as we sit before your word today, our desire is not that we would hear a great sermon by a charismatic preacher that makes us feel better about ourselves, but our desire is that we would be faced with the word. And that the word would lead us and the word would guide us and it would set the agenda. And that the spirit, your Holy Spirit, would quicken our hearts to respond to that word. And so we ask this morning that you would do a work in our hearts through the power of your word and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, as we, we come before this text, I confess that I deeply need your help today. In some weeks, that's more realized than others, but every week we have confidence that you are working, that it is not us, but it is Christ through us. So we rejoice in that this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Many of us, when we think of the book of Daniel, think of the story that we will be in today. It's a story of a lion's den. And a story of a man who is thrown into that lion's den and has some supernatural ability to just take a nap with them for the evening and arise unscathed. It's a story that many of us are familiar with. Even those of us who haven't been churched, we have heard of Daniel and the lion's den. And so what does Daniel in the lion's den have to say to us in 2022 about our lives in Christ and about how we engage in our world today. Well, it has a lot to say. But in order for it to say some of those things, I think it's ridiculously important that we realize that sometimes familiarity with stories leads to misunderstanding of stories. Sometimes familiarity with stories leads to misunderstanding of stories. Daniel is so familiar to us, and this story in particular, that we can read it and we can easily think, I know what this is about. And it is a fairly easy passage to interpret the meaning but the meaning of this passage is going to point us towards a much greater hero than ourselves. And that is so important for us to grab this morning. The book of Daniel and the story of Daniel in the lion's den is not about Daniel. And it's not about you or me. 
It's about Christ. And because it's about Christ, it gets to be about us, but not the other way around. And so this morning as we enter into this text, my prayer is that we see Jesus. We're going to read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28, and, and my hope is that we would be able to follow the characters of this story to point us towards a greater Daniel, so to speak. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28 it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. That word satraps is essentially uh, government officials or high officials. And then over them he set three high officials over of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Let me quickly unpack what's happening here. Essentially, these other officials have said, king, instead of anyone praying to any other god as their intermediary, they should pray to you and you will make intercession between them and God. And so the king says, that's a great idea. We're not telling them not to worship anymore. We're just telling them how to get to God. It's through the king. Okay? Verse 8, or verse 7. Uh, at the end of verse 7, it says, Injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, that's important, he knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously, quickly unpacking what Daniel's doing. This is not for you today the recommendation for how you should pray. If you feel convicted to that, you should absolutely go pray three times a day with your windows open to Jerusalem. But here's what Daniel's doing. In 2 Kings, there's a uh, dedication of the temple of Jerusalem. And Solomon says, when the people of God are removed from Jerusalem, they should pray three times a day facing Jerusalem as a reminder that they have been removed because of their sin. 
and they should repent for that. And so Daniel, who is in exile, he's not in Jerusalem. He turns and he's facing the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because he's reminding himself that his sin and the sins of the people of Israel have led to them being exiled. And so Daniel is following the laws and the commands that God has set out for his people when they are exiled from the promised land, a reminder to repent of our sins. And so if anything we can take from Daniel's prayer at this point in time, we should take a reminder to repent for our sins. <laughs> Great. Amen. Back to the story. Then the king... And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the Lord, the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. 
So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's important as we come to this text that we follow the characters. We're in narrative. And what do you do when you're in narrative? If you were to read a fiction book, you'd be paying very, very close attention to the development of the characters. And in this text, that is just what we are going to do. We are going to pay very, very close attention to the development of the characters. And so, as I've been trying to look through this, I think that there's four characters in this text that we should pay attention to. The, the first is Daniel. And Daniel is the faithful servant. As we uh, unpack his character, that's what we learn about him. He is the faithful servant. The, the second character is the high officials. And the high officials, as we unpack their characters, they are jealous and malicious accusers. And then we also need to pay attention to another character in this story, and that's the king. The king. And if we will carefully notice in this story what the king is, is much less of a king. He's much more of a manipulated power. And then the last character who we'll pay attention to is God. And what we learn about God in this chapter and about his character is that he is a deliverer and a rescuer. He is a deliverer and he is a rescuer. And so that first character, Daniel, let's pay attention to Daniel. There's some things we learn about Daniel in the first six verses and then in verse 10. And I think there's, there's three observations that I have that I want us to, to sit with today. The first observation is that Daniel was so good at his job that others noticed. <laughs> Daniel was so good at his job that others noticed. Uh, look with me at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The king literally wanted to give Daniel control over all of it. He's like, this dude has done such a good job that we're going to move him up. Why did the king put Daniel in charge? Why did the king put these three officials in charge? So that the kingdom would suffer no loss, which means that Daniel has done such a good job of preserving this earthly kingdom that the king of that kingdom was like, we got to get this guy in charge of all of it. He stewarded all of it so well. Now, I want to be careful here because, as we said, this story is about Jesus. It is. It's about Jesus. But there's something happening in this passage that if we did not spend a moment focusing on, we would sorely miss out as believers. It's the redemptive power of work. Daniel has done such a good job at his job that it's leading to him having greater opportunity to preserve the kingdom and to preach the gospel as he understands it, the good news of God. This is something I really think that we have missed in our day and age. I really think we've missed this. I mean, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we have this command at the very beginning to rule and subdue. Adam and Eve are called to spread God's happy rule throughout the rest of the world. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. 
rule and subdue. Here's what's crazy about this. In Genesis 3, when the fall happens, work is still a part of their lives. It's painful and it's difficult and it's hard, but the call to rule and subdue still exists. And brothers and sisters, if, if I may, I think that that's something we need to grab in the church today. That how we live our lives at work actually matters. It actually matters. Man, we live in a day and age that will tell you, unless you are finding happiness and fulfillment at your job, it has no meaning and purpose and value, and you should probably stop and go find another job. Right? And so what do we do? We run around like crazy looking for meaning and purpose in our jobs when what we're supposed to be doing there has meaning and purpose. Rule and subdue. Like, like live into God's redemptive plan for your job. I don't want to waste my time here. But there's something, well, it's not wasted, but it, it, it isn't the most important thing of this passage. But there is something here about Daniel's life that we need to grab hold of. Daniel, in doing an excellent job at work, is bringing glory to God. He's bringing glory to God. Here's what this doesn't mean. Here's what this doesn't mean. Daniel did not show up to work every day with his Bible and start preaching sermons. Now, I have the awesome job of doing that. <laughs> um, this is not saying don't preach the gospel. But what it is saying is that Daniel's influence was not made because he was such a good preacher at work. Daniel's influence was made because he was such a good employee. Like he had done such a good job at the job that the king was like, we should use this dude. And that leads to incredible opportunities for Daniel to preach. So he still preaches. <laughs> But it's his job and his influence at the job that prepares the ground for others to hear the message. That makes sense? Second observation I think that we need to make about Daniel is that Daniel could not be found at fault in the laws of the land. Like, these guys looked, like, these guys looked through his records and they're like, he's not speeding. He's, there's no tax evasion happening. Like, he is just following all the laws. They couldn't find anything to get him on. And the third thing I think we need to know about Daniel and observe about Daniel is Daniel could not be found at fault in the laws of God. Daniel has not disobeyed God, and he has not disobeyed the kingdom that he lives in. This is what many have called the knife edge of faithfulness. The knife edge of faithfulness. We have this man in this story who lives in his kingdom in such a way that he seeks the good of that kingdom, that he pursues the success of that kingdom, but he does not do so at the expense of his faithfulness to God. He's not cutting corners. He, he is not cheating. He's not trying to say, well, if the government doesn't find out about it, it's not that big of a deal. Like he is doing such a good job at walking the fine line of faithfulness. 
There's a mountain range in uh, Maine called Mount Katadin, and this is a picture of it, and this is a picture of what's called the Knife Edge Trail. So this Knife Edge Trail, as you can kind of see it, it's, it's like working its way over the top of the mountains, and you can actually hike that. It's the Knife Edge Trail. You can hike that. I wouldn't, but you could. There are many people who go to this Knife Edge Trail in, in Mount Cavadine in Maine, and it's one mile in length. And so you get up about uh, 300, you've walked kind of elevated 365 feet, and then you get to this one mile trail that just closes in, and it goes back and forth, and it's loose footing and loose rocks. And when, once you have started the Knife Edge, they say you're not allowed to turn around. Because if you turn around, there's no room for somebody else to get by you on the knife edge. Like, you are on the knife edge and you're on it. And you're committed to it and you've got to keep walking it. They recommend that uh, traverse across, across the knife edge is relatively tough and it requires focus and agility. And some spots are as narrow as four feet with 2,000 foot of a drop on either side. So you've got four feet, right? Like that's probably right here, yeah? Let's say maybe a little wider. And one misstep to the left or one misstep to the right and you're 2,000 feet down a hill. That's the knife edge trail. And I use this illustration because that is also the knife edge of faithfulness. One step to the left, one step to the right, trying to turn around saying, I don't want to do this anymore, doesn't work. It's a knife edge. It's, it's, it's thin. It's being faithful to the laws of the land, and yet at the same time being faithful to the laws of God is a very small and narrow road. And it's not an easy one to cross. This is essentially what you and I are living in the Christian life. It's the knife edge of faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to our city, and inevitably, inevitably, those things are going to clash. But the call for us is to walk it. The call for us is to walk the knife edge of faithfulness. The second person I want to focus on in this text is, or the second character is the malicious accusers. Look at verses 7 to 9 for me. It's really important that we notice first that these guys could not find anything against Daniel. They were super jealous of him and his position that he had, but they could not find anything against him. And so... They start to think of ways to get Daniel. And notice what it says first in verse 5. We will not find anything against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This is what they know about Daniel. He is so faithful to God that the only way, the only way they're going to be able to get him is if they change the laws so that it causes him to be confronted with obedience to God or obedience to man. What an incredible, incredible testimony. There's not a lot of testimonies in the Old Testament of people that we should strive to be like. 
<laughs> There's just not. Most of them, it's like this person's a failure. But this right here is going to radical, radical, radical amounts of effort to get us to see that Daniel is someone worth imaging. Hopefully that language sticks with you as we talk about who this passage is really about. These malicious accusers, they see Daniel's unfaithfulness and they're just, or Daniel's faithfulness and they're just bewildered. They have to change the law. And this is something that I think we need to grab from this passage. Uh, Daniel's life and the power that he has influences the world in such a way that they come after him. And what we cannot say from the life of Daniel, nowhere in the book can we read the life of Daniel and say, well, he was unfaithful or he did something wrong. Daniel did everything he possibly could do right. And so what we learn from this is you can do everything right. You can do everything right and the world will still hate you. Hear me, friends. We're talking about faithfulness in the culture, in this text today. We need to be winsome. I believe that. We should not just be jerks. Like, you should not show up to the job and they're like, oh, gosh, I can't believe they're here. They should, like, desire to work with you. They should desire to have you there. They should be really excited that you're in the building with them. Your, your position as a human being should be a winsome position. But here's the reality. No matter how winsome you are, you may or may not be liked. We need to be winsome, I believe that, but we cannot judge faithfulness on whether or not the world is pleased with us. Now, don't be a jerk. Don't do that. But, but the definer of others' being pleased with us cannot be our motivation for what is right or what is wrong. And so these malicious accusers, they devise a plan because they know that the only way to get to Daniel is in connection with his God, but they live by the law. And so they create a new law that will require Daniel to decide who he's going to be faithful to. And what does Daniel do? He prays every day still. They create this law because they know that this is how they're going to get him. They've watched him. They see that this is how they're going to get him. And Daniel continues in the pattern like he had before. And we're going to get into the content of that prayer a little bit more in a few weeks, but it's important to note that right now, the only way that they can get to Daniel is if they change the laws of the land to pit the laws against Daniel's God. It's the only way they can get to him. And so they use our next character in the story, who is a king, which is really just a manipulated power, which is interesting to see, as we've noted that kings throughout the book of Daniel point towards kings in the book of Revelation. And what are the kings and nations, the beasts in Revelation? They're just manipulated powers. Manipulated powers. And here we see that happening in this text, a manipulated power. They manipulate this king into putting a law into place, into a situation he, he doesn't actually want to follow through on. We watch the king as he understands <laughs> what his law has done and what it will cause Daniel to do. It will cause Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den. And this entire time as they're watching, as the king's watching this, he's almost like a, a buffoon, right? He kind of just seems like at the whim of whoever moves him. 
He's manipulated, and the law is manipulated so that Daniel would be thrown into the lion's den. In Medo-Persian law, it's really important that we grab this. Once a law is in place, it cannot be overturned even if the king wants it to be overturned. We, we see this in the book of Esther when uh, Haman uh, just goes and he gets King Xerxes to change the law and the law leads to Esther, the queen's people, being up for uh, slaughtering. Uh, they're, they're to be killed. And so what does the king then do? He has to write a new law to counteract it. He can't change the old law, but he can write a new law that would allow the people to protect themselves. That's what's happening here. The king can't change this law. Daniel will be thrown in the lion's den. And so we have a king who doesn't really want Daniel to be killed, but he's at the mercy of the law. He has no choice. He loses sleep over it. And then the next morning, we see as this manipulated power desires that Daniel would be rescued. And he runs to the lion's den. And that brings us to our next character in the story, and that's God. Notice, if you will, in this story, we could spend, I mean, all of us got, right, that when we were reading this, that Daniel wasn't killed in the lion's den. We all picked that up, yeah? Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure I didn't have to exposit that a little bit more. Daniel didn't die. <laughs> he was unharmed. He comes out of the lion's den. He goes into the lion's den overnight, and he's unharmed, which we can't say that it's not like these lions were just sedated. This isn't like those places in other countries where you can go you know, pet the lions or pet the tiger. Like, that's not what's happening here because we see at the end of the chapter that these lions were ferocious lions that Daniel was thrown in with. So what do we do? with Daniel who's been delivered. Why was he delivered? Well, look at verse 22 and 23 for me. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. If we skip down to verse 23, at the last part of that, it says, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel was, was delivered from certain death for two reasons. One, his blamelessness, and two, his trust in God. Like, we cannot read anything else into this story other than that. That is why Daniel was delivered. His blamelessness and his trust in God. And the result of that, the result of, of Daniel's blameless trust in God and his deliverance is that the king proclaims a very similar proclamation to what we saw in Daniel chapter 4. Peace be multiplied to all peoples, nations, and languages. The victory of God in this situation leads to God's name being proclaimed to the nations. Okay, we've done a lot of work understanding what the passage is saying. But I told you that this passage isn't about Daniel, right? It's not. 
what this passage is trying to get us to see is that God does the work of delivering so that the nations would know his name. And he's going to do that work through a blameless servant who trusts in God. The Old Testament, from Genesis onward, is all proclaiming and prophesying that there is going to be a day where God delivers and He rescues through a faithful servant. And that faithful servant is Jesus. <laughs> it's not you, it's not me, it's not even Daniel. It isn't. Daniel's a type of that. But it's Jesus. Like, let's just do this real quickly because we, we need this. Um, how, how does this passage point to Jesus? Like Daniel in this passage, Daniel is considered blameless, and Jesus lives a life of blamelessness and claims to be over the kingdom of God. Like Daniel is caught in the act of praying and turned over to the authorities, Jesus is caught in the Garden of Gethsemane praying where he is arrested and turned over to the authorities. Like Daniel is maliciously accused, Jesus is maliciously accused by those who are threatened by his power. Like Daniel is delivered over to death by a manipulated state, the Roman Empire, Jesus, or like the Persian Empire, Jesus is, a, is delivered over to a manipulated power, the Roman Empire, where the law is leveraged against Jesus to deliver him over to death. And like Daniel is noticeably silent in this passage. From verses 1 to 21, we hear nothing from him. He says nothing. He's silent. He's led to the slaughter. And Jesus is called the silent. He's silent as a lamb led to the slaughter and opening not his mouth. Like Daniel is put in a tomb and a stone is rolled over to seal him in, in place. Jesus is placed in a tomb with a stone rolled over to seal him in place. And at the break of day as the king runs to see if Daniel has been delivered, on the third day, Mary runs to the tomb to see if Jesus has resurrected. This is outstanding to us. And, Jesus, and just as Daniel rises unharmed, Jesus rises unharmed in all his glory because he was found blameless before God. Like Daniel's deliverance from death is used for the proclamation of God to the nations, Jesus' deliverance from death is the way of salvation for the nations. And just as Daniel's enemies are defeated by the same law they relied on for success, the greatest enemy, death, is defeated by the law it relied on for power. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why did Jesus have to die? We're studying this book, which talks about an all-powerful God and, and an all-powerful God who is sovereign all, over all things. Why would Jesus have to die? Couldn't God have just figured out something else for salvation? Have you ever wondered that? No? Maybe just me? Maybe I'm the only one thinking that? I think that. I, I'm wondering. I want us to notice verse 24. It, it's really striking to us. Verse 24 and the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. And this is really dark. They, their children, and their wives. 
And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The law of the land at this time is what the malicious accusers used to get Daniel in the lion's den, right? They used the law. They lived by the law. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, the law was that if an accused party suffered criminal punishment but ended up being innocent, then those who accused them and their entire families would suffer the punishment too. These men who lived by the law die by the law. That makes sense? Where is death's power found? It's found in the law. What does Jesus say in the garden? Or not Jesus, what does God say in the garden? God says in the garden, anyone who eats of this tree will surely die. And what do Adam and Eve do? They eat of the tree, so giving death power. Death's power is over us because of sin. So why does Jesus have to die? Because in the garden, this law shows up that you will surely die. The, the enemy of death gains power over humanity because humanity sins, but Jesus lives a sinless life. His life is perfect. He's blameless. And when Jesus dies, what is death doing? It's taking something that doesn't belong to it. Jesus never broke the law. He never gave sin power. He never gave death power. And because of his blamelessness, when death takes Jesus, it becomes a transgressor. It's broken the law now. And it loses its power because it's lived by the law. And it dies by the law. Because Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. When Jesus dies, death becomes the transgressor because it took what did not belong to it in Jesus' life. In doing so, death loses its power and stands condemned. And what this story is trying to get us to see is that those who live by the law will die by the law, but the righteous shall live by faith. Daniel had faith that God would deliver him. Jesus trusts that God the Father will raise him from the dead. And for all who put their faith in Jesus, death is not the end of our story. Life forevermore in Christ is. And we miss out on that if we make this simply a story about faithfulness. That's certainly there. We should be good at our jobs. We should be faithful. We should live on that knife edge of faithfulness. But if we miss Jesus in this story, we miss life. This is a story about Jesus, and it's pointing us forward to him and inviting us to live into his life and his mission. And the good news about Jesus' life and his mission is that when we live into that, when we walk in his delivering and rescuing power here and now in our city, we get to see what's proclaimed at the end of this passage, that the nations are welcomed in. And we are invited to step into that story, the story of a God who through his blameless servant and his work is redeeming the world and bringing glory to himself by delivering and rescuing sinners from certain death because of one blameless man. 
This story invites us into faithfulness, knowing that when we step into the life of Christ, when we step into the life of the Spirit and the faithful pathway of the Christian life, God will be glorified and many will come to not to a knowledge of him. 2 Timothy 2, 12 through 13. It's one of my favorite verses in, in the, the entire Bible. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So how do I land the plane here, right? We don't want to just be like, hey, it's Jesus. I mean, we actually always want to do that. We just want to show you Jesus and let the work happen. But what is... What does the righteousness of Christ look like in our life today? If the righteous shall live by faith, that implies living, right? That, that is eternal. That's talking about an eternal state of the believer. It's also talking about right now. The righteous shall live by faith. When, when we believe in Christ, his righteousness, his blamelessness, all given to us. What does that look like today for you? So, what would it look like in your workplace to live into the righteousness of Christ? I'm not talking legalistic perfection, but like a humble belief that trusts God is who he says he is. And from that, we know that a way towards showing off his glory and his redemptive power is doing the best we possibly can at work because the righteousness of Christ dwells in us and we live out of that. What would it look like in your friendships to live into the righteousness of Christ? What would it look like in your family to live into the righteousness of Christ? Like, what if, what if your, your kids or just knew that the most important thing in your family was God? And we trust the righteousness of Christ for our life and for our value and for, like, we're not seeking value in other things. The righteousness of Christ is where we get our value. What if, what if that was the, the narrative of your life? What if... At the end of your life, those closest to you could just say, they just trusted in God. Like, they just believed in God. And that was what people said about you. And because they believed in God, they did their job well, and they loved their spouse well, and they parented their kids out of a desire to have them know God. And they did it all imperfectly, but they didn't seemed to let that get them down because they trusted in a righteousness that was not their own. And, and because of that, they almost lived their life in a way that was blameless. Like, there was never something behind the scenes that they just weren't letting anybody hear about. What would it look like in your marriage to live into the righteousness of Christ? Well, I think it would, it would start by us Stop pretending that we have it all together <laughs> and being honest about where we're at and inviting people to speak into that process because we just know that the righteousness of Christ defines our value, not whether or not we have a good marriage. What would it look like if we lived into the righteousness of Christ in our political environment? I think it would be unwavering trust that he's the king on the throne and that we're called to healthy engagement. It, it doesn't put our hope in the, the nation, but it does put our hope in God and still engages because we know we're here for a reason. Like, 
What if we lived into the righteousness of Christ because we trusted God's delivering power so much? <laughs> so much that we knew that his righteousness through Jesus Christ has been given to us, that death is no longer defeat, that we have power to overcome death. What if we lived into those truths in such a way that the narrative of our lives was they trusted God? And my friends, that's our testimony. That is. You have also been delivered from the lion's den because of the faithfulness of Christ and his righteousness for you. You have been delivered from certain death because of your faith in Jesus. And belief in that literally changes everything. I had a conversation with somebody recently, and I'm going to finish here. Um, I had a conversation with somebody recently where they said for years they, they, they went to church, they understood the gospel, but they wouldn't say that they were a Christian. And not because they weren't living into it, but because they were like, man, if I'm going to believe this, this is going to change everything. It's going to change everything. Believing in the righteousness of Christ for you is not something that simply stays in the past. It literally changes everything. If you believe and trust in God, it changes your entire life. That doesn't mean you'll walk in perfection. That doesn't mean that tomorrow you're going to be a brand new human being who no, everybody looks at you and you're like, oh my gosh, I never, never noticed you before. But it does mean that over time, over time, your life will progressively image Christ more because you've believed him rightly. And that will lead to a righteousness that it can only come from Jesus and delivers us from certain death. Not our own work, yet not I, but through Christ in me is the blamelessness of the Christian. Let's pray. God, you, you wrote this text, not us. You sent your son to die, not because we were blameless, but because you were. And in doing so, you've made a way for us to live and to walk in the righteousness of Christ that will endure far beyond our lifetime. God, would you, would you help us this morning as we desire, we look at this character of Daniel who lives blameless, who lives a righteous life, who dies a death that he doesn't deserve, and that points our eyes to Jesus who overcomes death because of his work on the cross, because of his perfect life. Lord, and our desire is that we would live into that identity that you have bought and you have purchased for us, that we are no longer known by our failures and our faults. We're known by the righteousness of Christ. And I pray that that would just lead us into our communities, proclaiming the good news of God's delivering and his rescuing work so that the nations would know you. Lord, we here in this room are testimony 
to your delivering work through the nations. We are. I am. You have delivered the nations. Help us to live into that on, on the, the knife edge of faithfulness, Lord, that we would be faithful to God and that we would love our city in such a way that we promote the beauty of Christ in every area of life. In your name we pray. Amen.